John chapter 11, verse 47, and we'll look at that through chapter 12, verse 11. So we're going to skip right over the chapter break and read this passage, uh, which describes some of the preparations, preparations in different ways, but some of the preparations for Christ's death as uh, Jesus was coming uh, very soon to the time in which he would be crucified. This is right after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And also I'll pick up in verse 47, but some of the people who had just seen that miracle uh, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So we'll pick up then at that point in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord, we thank you for the the gospel, the good news of your son Jesus. 
And we pray that you would make the scripture that has been read thus far and the preaching of your word uh, effectual to convict, to, to build us up, to strengthen us, to uh, bear good fruit in our lives. That we might receive it by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage, we have several things that are very different from one another. We have the the plots of the council. We have a dinner with Lazarus and his sisters. Uh, But there are some common themes throughout. And and at both ends, you might say at bookends of this passage, we have uh, the plots of the Jewish leaders uh, to put people to death, to put Jesus to death at the beginning, and then even at the end to put Lazarus to death. You know, the guy who was dead and got raised from the dead, they're going to put him to death again because people were seeing him and were believing in Jesus. Um, so it begins and ends with the plots of that council. And preparations are made for the death of Jesus in two ways. First, the council plots his death. They, they are planning it. And on the other hand, Mary anoints Jesus for his death, for his burial. And so it's a different kind of, of preparation here. Um, in both ways, there's kind of a, a prophetic significance of what is being done, um, foreshadowing what is about to come, something that Jesus was quite aware was going to come already, his death. The persons doing the actions were not necessarily aware of the full significance of their words and actions. At least we know Caiaphas, the high priest, was not aware of the full meaning of the words that he spoke. There's also a contrast in the beginning of chapter 12 between Mary and someone else who was at that dinner, Judas. Mary and Judas had contrasting uh, views of Christ. Mary devoted herself to Jesus with sacrifice and affection. But Judas lacked this devotion for Jesus and had his heart set on money instead. He was about to betray Jesus and would do so shortly after this. Now, the council plotted in response to the news of a miracle, the news that Lazarus had been raised by Jesus from the dead. Now, that had taken place between December, the Feast of Dedication, and Passover, which would be at the beginning of spring. Now, this led to very heightened expectations and tensions as Passover approached. Jesus withdrew when he heard of this plotting, withdrew from Bethany. Bethany, again, being very close to Jerusalem. He withdrew from there to a town further away near the wilderness called Ephraim and was there with his disciples until Passover came, perhaps a month. Uh, We don't know how long exactly. And then on the Saturday before Passover, six days before Passover, that day before his triumphal entry, he came to Bethany, or he was at Bethany, where a dinner was given for him. Uh, I, I believe the dinner was held on that day, which seems to be the, the, the natural understanding of the text here. If you read Matthew and Mark, they mention it after they've described things two days before the Passover, but they don't necessarily say that the dinner was at that time. They probably recount it out of order, out of thematic reasons, because of the topics of Christ's death, which they were about to recount. 
In other words, uh, in, in any case, there was this dinner held in Bethany before Christ's crucifixion, but very soon before, in, in that time while he was staying in, we might call it a suburb of Jerusalem, and it was a dinner held at which Lazarus and his sisters were present. Um, Martha was helping serve the dinner, uh, which reminds us of a different story about them in Luke. Uh, that Lazarus was there as one of the guests, eating, reclining at table. Um, and Mary comes in with this pound of very expensive perfume, sweet-smelling ointment uh, that was made from pure nard and anoints Jesus, even his feet, with it. In fact, once Jesus was staying there, news spread that Jesus was there in Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha lived, that a large crowd of those Jews who were in Jerusalem already, preparing for the feast, purifying themselves. They were wondering, is Jesus here? They heard, Jesus is over there, just you know, two miles away. Let's go on, go on over there and see this man that he raised from the dead. And so they're going out there, and uh, probably that very day, um, if not, then early the next day. And uh, that same crowd is going to be significant on that triumphal entry. Uh, where does this crowd come from? Well, expectation has been building as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. Now, in the first part here, in the end of chapter 11, the point is that Jesus died, or would die, of course, from our perspective, he did, he did die. Jesus died for the people that they might not perish. And in the account of Mary's anointing of Jesus, we learn that Jesus is worth the highest devotion from us. So first, Jesus died for the people that they might not perish. The council gathers. The council here is not just any old council. It's the Sanhedrin. It was a presbytery, a council of 70 elders. Uh, 70 elders plus the high priest, so there'd be 71 people there. They functioned as like a supreme court and senate for the Jewish people. Uh, The elders were composed of chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people, all of them being considered elders in a sense, much like we have uh, ministers and ruling elders who are all thought of as elders as well that meet in presbyteries and general assemblies. The Presbyterian church government is not just a New Testament thing. Uh, But there was this great general assembly, this uh, council of the Jews, and they gathered. Now, there were some who were among them who were very sympathetic towards Christ, even believing in Christ, or at least moving in that direction. Among that council was Nicodemus, who we've seen speak up on Christ's behalf already, who met with Jesus in the night, and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who would later, with Nicodemus, help bury Jesus in just the next week. But they were members of the council that did not agree with its decision. And perhaps they even spoke up for Jesus, but the majority agreed with the words of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, to make sense of his words, you have to remember the situation. The Jews had some degree of of autonomy. The Romans realized they had to respect some of the Uh, sensitivities of of the Jews and their native leadership. And yet, because of problems already in the kingdom of Judea, the the governor now of that region was appointed by the Romans, Pontius Pilate. 
Um, there was still a Jewish king in Galilee, uh, one of the Herods, but uh, the Jews were, especially in that province, under the Roman government. And if there was too much trouble, the Romans might step on in and intervene and take even more political power away from them. This had been the case several times. At first, the Romans were allies, and then there was a Jewish civil war, and Ptolemy steps in and conquers Jerusalem. And then after Herod the Great's death, uh, things start to cause trouble in Jerusalem, and the Romans step in again and appoint their own governor. So the, the council here doesn't want the Romans to step in and to abolish their nation. There's that kind of background fear that has to be understood for this context. And so they voice concern that if Jesus keeps winning over this people, that this might cause turmoil in such a way that the Romans would step in and they would lose their place and their nation. What Caiaphas then recommends uh, or advises or urges is that they put Jesus to death, that it's expedient, it's better for this one man to die to save the nation, that the nation might not perish. Uh, Simply as a political move, we should put this guy to death so he doesn't jeopardize our political stability. Now, what Caiaphas meant was wickedness under the pretext of concern for the common good, for the good of the nation. He was a skillful politician of the worst sort who was concerned about expediency alone uh, and excused injustice by pleading the good of the nation. We have to put this guy to death so that we're, the rest of us are all safe. Uh, without regard to whether he's guilty or not, whether he deserves death or not, but simply for the good of the nation. He was willing to sacrifice him for the sake of political stability and for their place in the nation too. Uh, even though this man was just and righteous and had just done a great wonder in raising a man from the dead. What was Jesus' fault that he's faulted with? That a lot of people were coming and believing in him. Was that a crime? Uh, This was the Christ. It was also an ignorant or a dishonest argument. Either he was purposefully twisting the truth or they were simply not seeing clearly because of their hostility. Because Jesus was not a threat to political government in general. He was not calling people to a revolt against Rome. He was not like many other messianic leaders, false messiahs that would do such things, that would advocate for an armed rebellion against the Roman Empire. Jesus would explain to Pilate, my kingdom's different. It's not an earthly kingdom from this world getting its power from our weapons, but rather it's a heavenly kingdom that's coming to earth with spiritual power to convert even the Romans themselves to be part of it. It does not overturn political order. Um, although those people once converted might do better and reform what needs to be corrected. It would actually be the Jews who rejected Christ who would later revolt against the Romans. They would cause the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish state. It's incredibly ironic what is stated here because their concern is that every, that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, and that is ex- exactly what happened in 70 AD, but it's because they rejected Christ and executed him, and because they uh, continued in their ways 
that this disaster came upon them. And Jesus continued to go on, even though they killed him, and the world would go on to believe in him, despite their best efforts. But that's not all the irony that's here. Yes, their hostility towards Jesus blinded their judgment, and Caiaphas's advice was was both unwise and wicked. But what Caiaphas said also had another meaning, an unintended meaning, a prophetic meaning. Did Jesus die to save the people that they might not perish? Yeah, but not in the way Caiaphas meant, but in a way he did. John points this out in his gospel. He says, being the high priest this year, you know, he, he, he prophesied God spoke through these words, though it's not what Caiaphas was intending. In a providential irony, the high priest prophesied concerning the true meaning of Christ's death. It was good that this man should die for the people so that they might not perish. This was the, the scapegoat. This was the, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that would take away their sins. This is the, the sacrifice that God would provide to save his people from death and judgment. Jesus came to, gave his, to give his life as a ransom for many. So as John says, Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The nation here refers to the nation Caiaphas was talking about, the Jews, that Jesus would come to die for the Jewish people, for the Jewish nation. He was the savior of God's chosen people. He was their Christ. He was their king. He was the heir of David. They were the heirs of the covenant promises, the promises that had been building up for thousands of years. Jesus died for them. Even after the resurrection, where were the apostles first sent to call them to repentance and to receive their Savior and his atoning death? Jesus died for the nation. Now, this doesn't contradict the idea that Christ died for the elect, that those whom he died for, he did so in such a way as to save them. It's speaking of the Jewish nation as the visible church at that time, and Christ died for it. There were many Jews of that day that proved to be false members who were not of Christ's sheep, who rejected him. Jesus did not redeem them by his death like he did those individuals whom God had chosen. But because apostates and hypocrites in the church are in the church, in the visible church, Scripture can speak of them as denying the master who bought them or profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And that applies to both Jewish apostates and Christians today who are in the church and yet reject their Savior. It was tragic that the very Jewish leaders themselves were conspiring to kill their king and Savior. Yet some Jews did receive Christ, obviously the apostles, but more than that, a remnant elected by grace, as Paul says. And we have hope from Scripture for the future, that a partial hardening upon Israel will be lifted unto the salvation of the Jewish people as a whole. But then Jesus goes on to speak not just of the nation, or John would go on to speak not just of the nation, that Jesus didn't die just for the Jews, but also for the children of God scattered abroad. Who are the children of God scattered abroad? 
It's the same people referred to in John 10:16. The other sheep that are not of this fold that he would bring in. Those are the Gentiles, the elect Gentiles, those whom God would save from among all the nations. They had not yet been gathered. They were, at this point, scattered. They were not yet called to faith. But Christ would die for them, even while we were sinners, even while we were cut off and without hope in the world. Christ would die for them. They are called the children of God, not because they were already believers, but by virtue of their election, that God had set his love upon us. The Father had given them to his Son to save. He said, here are these people from all ages that I want you to save. Now go and and save them by laying down your life for them. He would die for them, and he would gather this people into one. He would take the Gentiles and graft them onto the olive tree, onto, onto Israel, making of them one people, one flock, one church of Jew and Gentile, one nation, or as Peter calls them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Who is this people, this, this nation? It's the church. It's the church of Jesus. He is the one who gathers us together and makes us one people gathers them who are scattered throughout all the nations. The gospel of his death and resurrection goes out now to all people, gathering in the elect by faith. Now, in what sense did Jesus die for the people? Did he die in a way to save them so that the Romans wouldn't get involved? Is that, is that in the sense in which Jesus died for them? No. He, he died for their sins. He died that they might have everlasting life. Not just life for a few years, not just for the life of a political entity. He would save them. Would he save them from the Romans? He would save them for something far worse, right? From a bigger danger. He would save them from the wrath of God, from alienation from God. He would save them from condemnation to eternal death for their sins. His death would not propitiate the Roman emperor. His death would propitiate the triune God. He would not die to maintain the peace of Rome. He would die to satisfy divine justice and establish peace between God and man. Now, one might ask, why was his death good in this respect, but what Caiaphas said, bad? Caiaphas wanted to kill an innocent man to save the people, and and God seems to want to kill an innocent man to save people. Why was what God did good and what Caiaphas wanted to do bad? Why do you think? Well, Jesus it was innocent before the law. For Caiaphas, for the civil magistrate in, in Jerusalem, Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. He was free of all sin. He was innocent of any crime. Caiaphas had no just cause to seek his death. But before God, the death of Jesus was a good thing because our sins were laid on him. As Isaiah 53 would say, the iniquity of us all, all our sins, were laid upon him. And so he died a death, a death that we deserved, a death that was deserved. It was 
a punishment for sin, not the uh, a death without just cause. As Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins were reckoned to his account, that he might pay them, so that we would no longer have to pay them, but rather would be counted as righteous, like Jesus is. Jesus died to satisfy divine justice for the sake of his people. Also, Jesus went willingly. Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life and power to raise it back up. Jesus went willingly to this death to be the savior of his people. He accepted this and received our sins upon him. Well, that's quite a bit, even in that first portion. We'll go a little quicker in the second portion, but let's look then at the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus is worthy of our highest devotion and gratitude. That's the application of the first part. Jesus died for the people that we might not perish, and so Jesus is worthy of the highest devotion and gratitude. And Mary showed this. Which Mary is this? Is this Mary the mother of Jesus? No. Is this Mary Magdalene? No. Is this Mary, the wife of Cleopas? No. No. Which Mary? There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Do you know Mary is even a form of Miriam? Like Miriam, Moses' sister? Is that the Mary that's here? No. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, Mary of Bethany. And Mary comes in with the ointment, and she anoints the feet of Jesus with this very precious ointment. You want to know how expensive it was? Like worth $8,000. (laughs) 300 denarii. Now, back then, you could work all day in the fields and the work and earn one denarii, one denarius, for a day's work. And so it would take 300 days, basically almost a a year if you count off. You know, you're not working the Sabbaths. You get some, some time off. It's about a year to be able to work. So whatever you think of as like a, a yearly income, that's like how much this pound of ointment was worth. And uh, other sources from the time period say the same, that certain kinds of ointment were far less expensive, but the best kind, like this, was worth about that much. And so Mary takes this very precious, expensive pound of ointment and perfume, and she spends all of it on Jesus. Um, Other Gospels mention anointing his head. Here it mentions her feet. It's probably from his his head even down to his feet. There was probably plenty of it. And she anoints Jesus with this perfume. Mary devoted herself to Jesus with sacrifice. Great sacrifice for herself. This was an expensive thing. And with affection. She even unbound her hair and washed his feet with her hair, with rubbing in the the ointment and the scent of the perfume filled the room. But Ju- Judas thought this was a waste. He saw this, this use of this expensive ointment and thought, well, we could have sold this and used that money to give to the poor. Now, did Judas care about the poor? No, Judas did not care about the poor. He was the treasurer. He had the money bag, and he wanted to help himself to some of it. He wanted to take some of this money for himself. The more money in the money bag, 
the more money he could take. And so he was pretty disappointed when he saw all of this supposedly go to waste on Jesus. Judas was already headed towards betraying his master. Judas was already in love with money, a root of all kinds of evil. And Judas already lacked a true devotion to his master, to his Lord, that he thought this a great waste, not like Mary. And so he comes with this excuse, this pretense, but Jesus Jesus rebukes him. The exact translation of verse 7 is somewhat disputed, but I think the ESV footnote gets it right. Leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. But this was for my burial. Now, perhaps Mary was saving it up for the day of his burial, and then because her brother had been raised from the dead, uh, that she decided to pull it out now and to use it. And it turns out that it was about right about before his burial and was prophetically, you know, providentially, preparing him for his burial. Or perhaps she had been listening to his teaching and catching on to the fact that he was going to lay down his life very soon. In any case, that was the significance. Just as his body would be uh, anointed with spices after he died, so already that was being prepared. In any case, it pointed to the coming death and burial of Christ and the great worth of Christ and his death, that it was a good thing, that it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice in the eyes of God. As Calvin says, the odor of his resurrection has now sufficient efficacy without nard and costly ointments to quicken the whole world. As the perfume filled the whole house, so Christ and his death and resurrection would fill the whole world with his glory, with his salvation. It's now the aroma of life. A blessed thing. Jesus reminds us, though, that that kind of devotion was unique to that time. Jesus was bodily present right there in front of them. So they could do that. Now, if you had all that, oil, that perfume, what would you put it on? You don't have Jesus to put it on. How do you show devotion to Jesus? How do you show gratitude for his salvation? Not quite in the same way. Jesus reminds us that you always have the poor with you. That... That is some, a, a way to show the service of God in all ages, but there was a particular way that they were to show devotion to Christ that was special to that time because he was there right in front of them. But we still have opportunity to care for the poor. Indeed, he would teach that we show devotion to him by caring for the least of his brothers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are in need. This is a way to show devotion to Christ. What are the sweet-smelling offerings that he would have us to offer? Hebrews 13 mentions two kinds. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in these ways, in the ways God has taught us, let us show devotion and gratitude to our Lord and Savior Christ. So Jesus died for his people that they might not perish. Jesus is worthy of the highest devotion and gratitude. Do not be like Caiaphas, who saw in Jesus a threat. Do not be like Judas, who did not value his master and was instead fixed on greed. Do not rationalize your rebellion like they did with pretense 
and false arguments, but put away greed and pride and imitate Mary. Prize the Savior and his death, which is a good thing for us. Entrust yourself to Christ and then serve him. For the spiritual sacrifices of those who believe in him are a pleasant aroma to the King of Kings. To him be the glory and honor forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for sending your only begotten Son, that through him we might live and live forever, that we might have the hope of resurrection on the last day, that we might have hope of life with you even after our deaths, and that we might even have our life now of fellowship with you and your love and favor. We pray that you would comfort us with these words, encourage us, you would bring us all uh, to this salvation, and that we might uh, embrace it with true faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.